If you are feeding on ashes, you have deceived your heart, says Isaiah 44 verse 20. Other translations say, if you are keeping or guarding ashes, your heart has deceived you. We become people who are feeding on ashes when the fire of God in us has died down. This word is among the nuggets found in the prophet Isaiah. I will show you some more of these nuggets. So if you want to find out whether you have been feeding on ashes, watch the message until the end. Bis zum Ende dran. And today I would like to speak about a few words that you might probably even know. There are some Bible verses that we love, especially we learn them by heart, even when we have Ari at school, or we see God's promises, the words that really go down well. You probably have heard that as well, you know, those who wait on the Lord shall raise up on wings as eagles. Who of you love that word? And so there are words in the Bible that we keep reading over and over again and we love them, they build us up. And I thought, well, today I would like to speak about a few Bible verses that will really bless you and build you up. And that are true nuggets. And that's also the title for my message. Nuggets from the prophet Isaiah. You know what nuggets are? They're little gold blobs. And sometimes we have to look and search for the nuggets. But these nuggets are so big, you don't actually have to even search for them. And then right in the very end, there is an application, and you can realize, and there's a word that will show you that the Lord speaks to you very practically. And I also believe that while we think about these verses, the Lord will minister to you. He will build your faith and maybe he will even heal you. The symptoms will go away. He will minister to you because the word of God does not return empty and it has authority, right? And we are not in a lecture here and just busy with our minds, with our intellect. Of course we are and we can do that. But the word of God has so much more. It has power and authority and it will never return to the Lord empty because it's sharp as any double-edged sword, and he is moving in power and authority. Well, the prophet Isaiah, did you know that the prophet Isaiah is the fifth longest book in the Bible? Did you realize how many chapters there are in Isaiah? 66 chapters. So now we can even have a quiz here. Do you know how many verses there are? 1,292 verses. And did you know what the shortest book of the Bible is? Did you know that? I'll tell you. The third epistle of the Apostle John, one chapter, 299 words, 15 verses. Really short. Anyway, Isaiah is the most well-known prophetic book of the Bible. And did you also know? Probably because you are an re avid reader of the Bible, that in the New Testament, the book of Isaiah is mentioned 419 times in 23 books of the 27 books of the New Testament. So actually, this was the most popular source to draw on. And I believe the New Testament authors they kept reading the book of Isaiah over and over again. They truly loved it. It was so important to them. And so Isaiah 6 verse 1 is quoted 10 times in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 7 is also quoted 10 times. So it's really worth it to truly take a closer look at the book of Isaiah. And this is not a lecture, but I want to share a few nuggets with you. So Isaiah, you know, means Yahweh is salvation. He, Yahweh saves. So that's his name. He used to live in Jerusalem as the king of Uzziah, Yotam, Aham. And in the book of Isaiah, it's about the special relationship that God has with his chosen people, Israel. And he wants to restore Israel to be a light and a blessing to the nations. And I know we've got a few theologians here. Well, of course, they get quarreling about the uh, the author of Isaiah. There's the proto-Isaiah, uh, deutero-Isaiah, and all sorts of Isaiahs. I tell you, good news, Jesus didn't have 
have any problem with it. He quoted him in the synagogue and he didn't ask who was the author. He's just the living word. So just tell the person next to you, Isaiah is the living word of God. Amen. And you know, sometimes we get so hung up on these things and we don't receive what God truly has prepared for us here. And now, of course, the book of Isaiah is much too long, 66 chapters, uh, you know, this is not possible, I can't tell you all of that. So I said, I'll just take a few verses from 10 different chapters, so these verses are between Isaiah 60 no, Isaiah 40 and 50-something, so that's what we'll deal with today. Nuggets from I, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, it's worth it reading it. Of course, we do have the slides to show you, but it's much better to have a look in your own Bible, because you can even take a pen and mark it and underline it or write a note in it, whatever. Anyway, Isaiah 40, verse 28 to 31. Don't you know? Have you not heard? The Lord, the Almighty God, who created the ends of the earth, is neither tired nor weary. His mind no one can fathom. He restores strength to the tired. And now the word we really love. He restores strength to the weary. And new power to the weak. Who of you has ever read that and thought, this is for me? So, young men can grow tired and weary. Who of you young men said, I've become tired and weary? Hardly anyone. Only Joni. Yeah, he raised his hand. Okay. So, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. So, who of the men said, I, yes, I feel like stumbling and falling? Anyway, good news is, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Yeah, their strength, that's really good. Yeah, the weakness and tired and weary, we don't like that. But the new strength, that's good. They will run and not grow weary and they will walk and not be faint. Wow, great. So, let's take a look at a few verses here. The living God, Yahweh, Olam Elohim, the God who's not limited by time, the God of eternity, right from the beginning. And then it says here, He who created the laws of the earth, because He is Creator, Creator of the ends of the earth, God of heaven. He does not grow tired or weary, because tiredness and weariness is not a mark of heaven, but a mark of this creation here, okay? So, in eternity, our God neither slumbers or sleeps, so there is no tiredness in eternity. I'm sorry for everyone who enjoys a good lion. I'm sorry. But our God neither slumbers nor sleeps, but he's full of strength and authority, and his power, his strength, his capacity no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. And he does that in a twofold way, over and over again. Young, youth grow tired and weary. And now the, the big important point here, but those who hope in the Lord. So, the word to hope, to wait, is kava. They wait, they desire to see him, they remain with him, they absolutely want to have an encounter with him. So that's a prerequisite here, because power doesn't come like that. It's not like with a good fairy, you know, pouring out uh, her miracles, but this new strength is activated when we sit by his feet, waiting for him, hoping in him. That's when he'll come. That's what we see here. So their strength is renewed, is restored from heaven. And we knew that's the strength of the Holy Spirit. And they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they'll walk and not be faint. So first point here is the Lord says, I am giving you the supernatural strength of heaven. And say, yes, I take hold of that. I take it. I am giving you the supernatural strength of heaven. Let's take a look at the next verse. In Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3, but now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Do you know that word? For I have redeemed you. 
losgekommen. So I have bought you. I have summoned you by name. So the Hebrew word for name is Shem, Hashem, the name. I have summoned you by name. I have called you. So whenever a name is called, it means that we are called personally. That's why it's so important for our Jewish friends, for us to mention the names when we remember. I have summoned you by name. I've called you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set, set you ablaze. And here, at the very latest, we have to think about that. Is that for me now or for Israel? Now, what is this prophetic word here? Because so easily we take these verses and promises for us and say, personally, wow, glorious, we'll take it. It's a wonderful word. But actually, we know, and we see it here in this verse especially, This is about the promises for Israel. A prophetic word to Jacob. I created you, O Jacob. I formed you, O Israel. And then this word is right for his chosen people. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You have a name. And then God sees Israel like a person. And so this is how it is with prophecies that we can look at and the words about Israel. We always need to keep the right order in things. And in prophecy, it's not a problem if we have these words that are directed to the people of Israel and then return and we can also receive them for ourselves. So if you're sitting here and say, wow, this word is also for me, then it's not just because there, you have inherited that like we hear it in replacement theology, but because we have been grafted into the olive tree and that's why we can also receive those promises. And that's the second word here. The Lord says, I am keeping you and I am with you. He is Emmanuel. And that's what the Lord also says to you. This wonderful God who says, it doesn't matter what the problems are you're facing. It doesn't matter how high the water is around you, what disaster is coming. I am Emmanuel. I'll never stop being Emmanuel. I am the Lord who's with you and who keeps you. And even if you go through the water, they will not sweep you away. And if you walk through the fire, and actually the word fire ish, that's also about judgment. So even this word, if you want to apply this, you could say that you can use the word fiery flame or oven. This is ter this terrible word. Persecution. I am with you. And this God is so mighty and so amazing that even through the deepest depths of need of persecution, He still is Emmanuel with us. So turn to the person next to you and tell them God is and will always be Emmanuel, the God with you. Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19. We also know that. I love this word. Forget the former things. Do not remember the former things. And do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. So forget the former things. This word, forget not or remember not, is to put up a memorial. But what it says here is there is a time when you truly have to let go of the old things. The past, the old life. And many times we are so bound in our past, our negative experiences, that we cannot let go. And this is what God says here. I will do a new thing. And you know the word sing a new song to the Lord because he is working miracles. So what God is doing is always by him doing something new. And then he continues to say, 
And I am making a way in the desert. So the Lord is just a specialist, you know. We don't usually like that very much, but the Lord's a specialist leading us through the desert. I don't know why. Anyone here who never ever had to walk through a desert, a spiritual desert? You know, I am preparing a way through the desert, a, a wasteland. I am making a way through the crisis that you're going through. Doesn't matter where you are, how far away you may be. I I am still there with you. And what he's saying here with this word is, I am doing a completely new thing, something that's totally unusual. If, and now that's the point, if you no longer hold on to the old things, if you don't hold on to sin but let go, I will do something completely new. If you let go of those old ways, I will do something new. Israel, the old ways of Egypt, your slave mentality, let go, come on. It only limits you in a prison. But if you let go, I can do a new thing. If you let go of those strongholds in your thoughts, the negative thoughts and expectations and fixations and mistrust, I mean, we know our own thoughts, right? And if you let go of that, if you let go of the past where you may be ashamed or you'd rather not think about these things you would repress it if you let go of that behold I'm doing a new thing so you see this if is really really important so don't put up a memorial for these old ways forget the former things do not dwell on the past but I will do a new thing so I'm doing something that's completely new let's take a look at the next verse Isaiah 43 verse 23 and 24 and this is something I really got stuck with when I read the prophet Isaiah it says yes you have you have uh, burdened me with your sins is what God says verse 24 but we can also he says that to Israel but we can also apply it to ourselves you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more that was new to me that I burdened God that I made work for him with my sins you know to, to put it in different words, to translate that into modern language, is I constantly was someone who made God continuously work with me, minister to me over and over again so I could get out of my sin. He said, you have burdened me with your sin. So when we sin, we burden God. And you wearied me with your offenses. You know, these offenses are iniquity. They stand for sin, perversion, twisted life. And then he says, and even though that was the case, or you could put it differently, you really put a lot of stress on me. Even, even though you put so much stress on me, I will blot out your transgressions. Not because you are so goodly, not because now you stick to all my rules, not because now you stick to the rules, not because you've got a nice godly face now or read so many books or do TSM. No, I will blot it out for my own sake, for my love's sake, because I just can't help it. And I will remember your sin no more. That's God's nature. He cannot keep hold of it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will remove our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. That's the nature of God. So my next point is, the Lord says, I will not keep hold of your sins anymore, even though they were very burdensome to me and they cost me a high price. And we know what the price was. The price of his own son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for us. The price that he had to let go of his own son who died and went to the cross for you and me. And now let's take a look at the next verse, Isaiah 54, verse 2 to 4. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, and Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. So, chosen, that's Bakar, 
You know that? Stefan wrote a book on that. If you've not purchased it yet, it is available in English also. It's about the fact that Israel is chosen. So fear not Israel, because I've chosen you. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit, my ruach, on your offspring and my blessing. It's the bracha, my blessing on your descendants, on the following generations. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. And so what the Lord's saying here is, I will pour out my spirit. That's the next thing. I won't leave you as you are. I will equip you. And you shall grow with your offspring, the following generations. And you know, offspring is not just something in our own bloodline. It's spiritual children who are growing to our right and left. And you lead them to the Lord. They look at you when you are with the Lord and they say, see, through this person, through you, I gave my life to Jesus. Through your testimony, your example drew me to the living God. You became light for me and now I'm saved and have eternal life. These are the following generations. I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. Wow, what wonderful words these are. Isaiah 54, verse 1 to 3. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And now that's the amazing word here. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut down bars of iron. Say amen. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. So it's a bit strange in this word here because Cyrus was the king of Persia. But here, in this passage, he's also used as an image for Jesus. So I will go before you I will level the mountains. And this is not about the Swabian mountains here or the Appalachies or whatever, the Alps to vanish, the Rockies to crumble down. But one way, one way to say this is all those who lift up themselves, who exalt themselves, to honor themselves, I will humble them and I will bring them to rest. And then it says, I will break down the gates of bronze. We had a wonderful image of a huge door and no one was able to walk through and then we approached the door and then you pressed the handle and nobody would have been able to open that gate. But then someone came from the inside, like angels, or I don't know who it was, but then from inside they opened that door, that gate. And when the door is opened from inside, it was easy to walk through. Usually we stop at things that are impossible. And in every life there are impossibilities. Maybe in your job, in your relationships, in your sickness. Maybe things you just cannot overcome. Maybe things that you've been struggling with for years. These are those bars of iron. Something that you as a human being just cannot solve. And yet the Lord says, I will break the bars of iron. I w what you cannot solve, I will solve for you. The doors that are closed, the gates that have been locked, I will open for you. And who of you has experienced closed doors to open up supernaturally? See, almost everyone here can testify and say, yes, I've experienced this. And I tell you, we're not talking about something theoretical here, but these are the realities. And he says, I will give you treasures of darkness riches stored in secret places, prosperity. I will give you fullness and all that so that you may know there's a goal, not for you to have more money. The Lord wants to bless us, no question, but for you to know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. So this brings us to our next point. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron and I will give you 
the riches stored in secret places. You have capacity for a few words more? You still with me? Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 4. So if you were to look into a certain German translation, it says, Israel, the servant of God is the light of the nations. That's the title for this part. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain for nothing. Yet, and now this is how you can see the calling of Israel. The calling of Israel is not just to be a good startup nation. It is also that. And you can see the blessing on Israel. You can see it in the economy and all other areas. So many Nobel Prize laureates. But it is a calling to be a light for the nations. And we can read that in verse 6. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. <laughs> I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And every Israeli knows this. How many times this has been quoted in memorial events, the Prime Minister, the President, everyone, even politicians, Israel is supposed to be a light for the nations. And God says, I am a God of restoration. What has been destroyed, I will restore. And that's what he also says to you and to us. God doesn't leave us the way we are. If we are willing, if we go with him, if we allow him to take us by the hand, if we leave behind our own agenda, and if we agree to God's agenda, he is a God of restoration. He restores relationships, families, he restores health, finances, but especially the restoration of our relationship to the Heavenly Father, the restoration to our relationship to God. This is what the Lord says, Isaiah 49. I've heard you at the time of grace, and at the day of salvation I help you, and I made you to be a covenant for the people, so you may establish the land. And what was destroyed to distribute again, and to say to those who are captives, and we know that, come out of her. And those sitting in darkness, come out. The captives come out of your captivity. If you are captive here, it's for tr you, true for you as well, and you only say yes. I need this. I want to come out of my captivity. And the Lord says to you, come out. To those in darkness, come out. And they will find pasture along the way, and they will feed on the heights. They'll have be neither hungry nor thirsty, neither heat nor sun will burn them, because the Lord shall be leading them and shall guide them to streams of living water. And that's real, right? Have you ever been to Israel in the desert heat? Probably down south, Beersheba, in the Sinai? You will think differently about streams of water than here. You know, here you open up the tap and then hopefully there is nice clear water from Lake Constance, hopefully. But in Israel, he says, I will lead them beside springs of water. I'll turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. And about the identity of Jerusalem, it is the fact that Israel was restored as a nation in 1948, when the state of Israel was established, is to establish the land again, and that you bring out and parcel out the heritage that has been desolate. And now this brings us to the New Testament, and we take a look at Jesus. Because you all know, 
Das ist die erste Predigt that the first message that Jesus ever preached was in Nazareth. We read that in Luke 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth. There's nothing new to us, of course. He was a Jew, and that's why, as he was used to, he went up to the synagogue. So he attended services on a regular basis. And then he stood up to read. And what did he do? He took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it is written. And that again gets us to Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2. That was his first message. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And now listen, he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's what he said. By reading this, as the son of the living God here, reading it, this word is fulfilled. And we know that in the Old Testament, we have countless prophet, prophetic promises that point to Jesus. Just one area, I found 54 prophecies and promises that very practically point to Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. And so many of them, of course, you find in the prophet Isaiah. And I think the most important chapter, of course, is Isaiah 53. He had no form or appearance. We saw him, but there was no appearance that we were attracted to. And maybe I, before I read this again, I have to say that our Jewish friends read this chapter in a completely different way. Of course, they put Israel in that place and not Jesus and Yeshua. But if you look at this chapter carefully, you can't help but seeing the crucifixion before you, your inner eyes. He was despised that men hid their faces and therefore we esteemed him not. And so this is not just a description of the crucifixion, but this is a depth that many times we don't even realize. And it says here, this man at the cross He was just usual. He was so common. He didn't have, you know, a glorious shine about him. There was no radiance in his face. The angels did not dance around him. You could not tell that he was the son of the living God. That's what it says here. He was without glory. He was despised and rejected. He was just like rubbish. There was no visible reason to hold on to him. There was no reason to say, oh yeah, he's the son of God. Like every other person, full of blood and wounds, there was no reason to keep hold of him. And yet, yet there was one reason. One reason. And that reason was his word. The reason was his prophetic word. And those who were around him, the disciples who stood at a distance and the mother of Jesus, they didn't stand there because there was this glorious radiance around him and the angels in the heavenly realm sang, but they remained with him because Jesus had predicted it exactly as it happened because they believed his word. And my friends, that's the difference. What makes you a follower of Jesus is that you believe the word of God, that you receive it and 
believe it. Es ist eben nicht it is not das, was du mit what you Augen see with your natural es eyes. Das, It's not what you feel with your emotions, but it is that the Lord has given it to you to believe his word. You can be sitting here and all of a sudden it's like a veil that's taken away from your eyes and you believe the word of God. You know that you know that this word speaks straight into your heart, even now, this afternoon. And I was reminded of something, and maybe that's just a little note by the way. The church of Jesus is called his body. And I'm not talking about a specific church here, maybe a free church, maybe a denomination, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what denomination we're talking about. It is called his body. And if the church is his body, it's not the body with the glorious radiance and the dancing angels and glory, but many times that's what we expect, what we think. This glory, this dream of what we would like it to look like. But there was a man, he wrote a book about it, and we all know and treasure and value him. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote the booklet Life Together. And he said, you know, if you're in a church, it doesn't matter which one, we have a dream image, and every such dream image of how good it should be and can be has to be broken at some point. So we won't keep hold of an illusion of what we would desire and what to look nice, because some people might get converted to a nice outlook of church, the dancing, fellowship, but stop it, it won't work. Bonhoeffer says that needs to be broken so there'll be a church that can live true fellowship. And what does it mean to live as part of the body? If you love the, your dream of the church more than the church itself, you become someone who destroys Christian fellowship. Even though you might really be sincere, so that's a quote of Bonhoeffer, what he writes in Life Together. The church has to do with Jesus and him crucified. He was despised, without value, familiar with suffering. He wasn't a perfect image. But it's to do with people who have laid down their own dreams and ideals at the cross of Jesus. Their vulnerability and their hurts who've brought that to the cross and who say, just because of the cross, I want to live in fellowship and community. Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. So for our iniquities, our transgressions, our sin, what I did, what I did wrong, that's what Jesus carried at the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So that's a mark of redemption, right? That's the shalom of God. We know shalom when we go to Israel, you say shalom, but the peace of God is a mark of our salvation. And we know exactly what it means not to have peace, right? When there is real upheaval in you and you're like driven and you can't find rest and peace and you can't sleep or you wake up at five in the morning, that's what it means du not to have peace. Home, you are but battling and struggling maybe with your past, with people, and you don't know where that's coming from. And you don't know how to find peace. But I can tell you, this peace comes through redemption. That we have peace, security in God, and by his stripes, we are healed. In verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. Do you know what that means? You know, we were individualists. We lived our own individual lives. And even in a church, we can live our individual lives. We go to a service and go back home. We go into a prayer night and return back home. We live as if we are all by ourselves. We can even worship and have coffee with each other. But the Lord somehow seems to have a different outlook. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before a shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So the Lord says, I have taken your sin and your disease, and I have borne it. So these are really powerful verses, right? And before we take the last few minutes to look at one more verse, the last one, what does the Lord say here? The Lord says, I am giving you the supernatural power of heaven. The Lord is saying to you, I am keeping you and I am with you. The Lord says, I am doing something completely new, something unusual, if you no longer keep hold of sin. And at last, you let go of the old mindsets and old ways. The Lord says, I will pour out my spirit upon you. You, along with your offspring, shall grow. And he says, I will break open those gates of bronze and give you hidden treasures. And supernaturally, I will lead you by springs of water. And right here in the end, he says, I have borne your sin and your diseases. And so actually, that was just like an introduction, but don't worry. It's a long introduction to a short closing. But all of this is the preparation to one verse. And that verse is not quite so well known and somehow people seem to overlook it. But you know that. You know, when you read the Bible and all of a sudden there's things that jump at you, leap in your face and God starts speaking about things. And we see that in Isaiah 44, verse 20, those who stir ashes are deceived. Isaiah 44, verse 20. Now, what does that mean? He who feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him? Now, what does that mean? A deluded heart? And then the verse continues a bit longer. And I will explain that in a bit more detail so you can understand. You know, here it says, He who feeds on ashes, a deluded heart misleads him, and he cannot save himself. He cannot save his soul. Or he cannot find salvation for his soul. And he says, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Or in different words, Am I not keeping a hold of lies with my right hand? And to put it in different words, if you enjoy feeding on ashes or brooding over ashes, like with a dead fire, he has deceived his soul, the center of your life. You have misled that. You have deceived that. And you, you live in deception and lies in your right hand. Or uh, in English it says he feeds on ashes. In German it says who keeps the ashes. So if you eat ashes, you actually destroy your mouth and you are so thirsty afterwards and it's really harmful to you to eat ashes. Or to put it differently, if you become a shepherd of ashes or a watchman over ashes. Now, what do the ashes represent? We all know our Bible, okay? Well, most of us anyway. And, you know, on the high places in Israel, that's where they had the idols and they worshipped the idols and they brought sacrifices. So, the, these ashes on the high places are representing idolatry. Of course, you can see that today. Maybe you go to Switzerland and you climb on a mountain and there you find the uh, idol altars there over the place, the yoga animations and the stone heaps, altars that are built, flags everywhere. You know, you've got all of that. And the message is polytheism, right? The a unity of various religions. That's nothing new, but it's ancient idolatry and paganism. So actually what it says here, if you worship idols, whether that's money or people or science, where we put those things in first place above God, my heart remains empty. 
Und da, wo ich das tue, and da when I do that, my heart is deluded or deceived. Because I thought this would bring satisfaction, this would fill my need, this would bring me peace. But that's not true, it doesn't work. You cannot save yourself. With new age, you cannot save your soul. With other idols, you cannot save your soul. You can't save your soul with even greatest knowledge and philosophies. Even with science, you cannot save your own soul. And you say, wow, I have grasped lies in my right hand. I keep hold of it. And so ashes also represent religious experiences in the past. Wow, sometimes I'm really amazed because many of us have made experiences, some good, but some not so very good. We've been formed in a certain way. Maybe I remained empty or I lived in sin or I lived a double life. But how easily do we keep hold of those old ways instead of asking ourselves, why did it not work in the first place? That's ashes. Old life. It's become part of my memory and even my religious memory. The word of God says, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And the consequence is that my heart is deluded. I've been deceived. And in my right hand I keep hold and believe the deception without actually gaining anything by it. You know the story. This ancient missionary story of the monkey, right? The, the monkey trap. Yeah, it has a little box with a small hole and the monkey's hand goes through and inside is a banana. You know the story, right? You've heard that. You are experienced Christians here. Well, some of you not. Okay, well, praise the Lord. I can tell you the story. The missionaries in even the 60s and 70s told the story as an example for sin. And you try and have the beautiful thing, you put your hand through the hole, the monkey takes hold of the banana, and because he's not willing to let go of the banana, he's caught. He can't get away. And that's how we are with our old religious experiences. We are not willing to let go of our own way ways and the Holy Spirit can't do something new there. So the ashes also represent someone who tries and seek their satisfaction in vain and empty things that won't last. The Bible speaks about straw and hay, right? You know that word. I build my own things. God doesn't want me not to feel happy or he doesn't want me not to be prosperous, but he's got a big problem when I place that above him, when that reigns my life. Because every one of us will stand before the living God at some point. And the question is, will it last what I've done? Maybe you've established a big business or you've got a wonderful family. Maybe you've got all sorts of things. But will that last in the eyes of the living God? Or will it be hay and straw? Is it tested before him? We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Nobody can lay another foundation except the one that has been laid, Jesus Christ. But if someone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, hay, straw, the work of each man shall be made manifest. The day of judgment shall bring it forth. So how lasting in heaven is what you are doing here. I believe in a sustainability of heaven, my friends. Will the things last in his sight? Or does the Lord have to say, and he has to look at you and me and say, well, how did you waste your time? How much have I entrusted to you? Why did you bury and hide the talents I gave you, why did you not invest them for people to be saved and to receive ministry? And I'm almost finished. The ashes also represent fire that's gone out. You know the word. Jesus says, I have come to set a fireplace on earth and how much do I wish it were already burning? 
There are so many people. They started out with the fire of the Holy Spirit, with the power of God, with a burning flame of the first love to Jesus. But then they didn't place fresh fire on the fresh wood on the fire, the, the wood of love to the Lord, the wood of prayer, the wood of worshiping in services, the wood of cell groups or receiving the word of God, the wood with a willing spirit clearing away sin from our lives, receiving counseling. They just stopped. And the fire became smaller and smaller and burnt down more and more. And so it's just ashes now. And who of you would try to light ashes? No one. We need to clear away the ashes. And we need to allow God to light a new fire. And that's what he's doing. And the ashes also represent someone who keeps hold of things, hold of the old life. There are people, they walk with Jesus and they walk with God, but they still keep hold. And if you talk to them, they tell you all sorts of stories, all the disasters, all the things that went wrong. And they've got their identity in their disaster instead of their new life in Jesus Christ. Hey, let go. Do not remember the former things, so let go. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stop condemning yourself. Stop determining your own negative lifestyle, but receive what Jesus has for you. And in closing, these ashes also represent mourning, spirit of mourning. There's a wonderful word. And now that brings us back to the message that Jesus preached at the end of this message here. Because that's what he preached in Nazareth. Because he keeps saying more than that. Says, he sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to restore the mourners of Zion and to grant them the oil of joy instead of sadness and a beautiful garment of praise instead of a mournful spirit. And actually what it says here is the headband, the crown of the priest would be restored to them. And so maybe you're still carrying these ashes on you. And instead, he wants to bestow on you a crown of beauty, the headband of the priest. That's the diadem the priest used to wear. It's like a crown, and it had a sign on it, and the sign read, Holy to the Lord. So, submitted to the Lord. And he says, give me your ashes. Stop feeding on ashes. Stop holding on to your past. Be, uh, stop deceiving yourself and holding on with your right hand to maybe lies in your mind, deception, temptations, let go. But I give you a crown of beauty instead of ashes. I give you a crown that says, holy to the Lord. Lord, I live in holiness and purity before you oil of gladness instead of mourning. So many times we are walking around and we are still having those garments of mourning. There is such a heaviness upon us and we don't know wh why. You wake up in the, in the morning and you are filled with mourning and go to bed at night with mourning. And the Lord said, I've got something for you. That's the oil of gladness and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Wow. This mighty, wonderful God is here. So let's all stand and let's pray together.